Cool Initiatives is seeking to support, develop and invest in ideas or edtech businesses that will help schools and teachers to operate more efficiently and effectively. As you're listening to the EdTech podcast, you may well have a great idea or know someone else who has an idea that you think would help schools and teachers to do this, and we'd be delighted to talk to you. We're very happy to discuss administrative tools as well as learning technologies, or you may have a non-digital product or other service that you think would be useful. Cool Initiatives already works with over 12,000 schools every day, with 20 years experience of building and sustaining a profitable business. We want to be able to use that experience to support others at the very start of their journey and build something great together. So you may have already started a business and want to take it to the next stage, or just have an idea and don't really know how to turn it into a business. You may not know your CAC from your LTV, your IP from your MVP, or your burn rate from your churn rate. But don't worry, buzzword bingo is not our game. We're here to help turn a great idea into a great business. To find out more about our investment approach, take a look at our website, coolinitiatives.com. And please just get in touch. We would love to hear more about your ideas and how they could support education. everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. I'm Sophie Bailey. We've got a jam-packed episode for you this week, but before, let's jump in with a few notices. Number one, the amazing Yoto Play have got a content and community job on the go. Uh, It's pro remote and flexible working um, and looks like a great opportunity. So go and check that out on our show notes if you're a content buff and love audio. Number two, if you're based in London, the famous London Educational Games Meetup Group or Leg Up are having their final bash and you should go along on the 3rd of April. Game over. Have you just launched an EdTech startup and wondering where your people are? Go and check out the LearnSpace Accelerator um, who are open for applications for 2019. Uh, Again, that's based in Paris and you can check out the details in our show notes. What else? The EdTech podcast is looking for a value aligned sponsor for our live podcast stage set idea to take our discussions on the road. Think TFI Friday crossed with memories of school crossed with the best meetup you've ever been to. Okay, done. Get in contact and let's make that happen. Good luck to pass the EdTech podcast guest Jess Stoffenberg, who is leaving Schools Week to write as a freelancer in earnest. Uh, We look forward very much to reading your new work. Um, And our Edu and EdTech events calendar is up and running on the website. So if you're interested in finding out lots of places to connect with other listeners and people uh, engaging in education and EdTech, Go and check that out. It's uh, on the edtechpodcast.com uh, forward slash events. And a few more events shout outs are also um, featured in our episode outro. This week, the EdTech Podcast will be at DigiFest, however, recording our second episode of the Education 4.0 series. So come and say hello or listen to the episode next week um, if you're not based in the UK. But what about this week's episode? Well, this week we continue the theme on interdisciplinarity 
by talking to Ed Fido, founder of the London Interdisciplinary School. Ed is just one of those people, not content with playing the adventures of a boy who shapeshifts into a dog in his younger years in the television series Woof, uh, something I hugely overlooked until someone brought this to my attention. Uh, Ed founded the innovative School 21 in 2012. His latest launch, however, the London Interdisciplinary School, offers a new style of degree, taking a radical approach to develop an exceptional group of pioneers. The idea is to cover off those skills needed not only to thrive in the 21st century, but to meet our biggest societal challenges. So going broad uh, and competency skill based, I suppose, uh, before going deep into whether it's engineering to tackle energy uh, or the equivalent. The LIS website speaks in inverted commas for those who want to shape the world and not just fit in which sounds pretty cool to me. Ed also advises several education institutions, including Eton College, Teach First and Cambridge University. So I'm super excited to share our conversation. As a little bonus, we also throw back to a recording at Innovate EdTech, which I realised hadn't yet been published. I'm in conversation with David Fudge from the aforementioned School 21, Tim Moore from the Harris Federation and We Are Human, Sophie Dean from Detective Dot and Enrico Riva from the British Dyslexia Association. And we're talking about multiple perspectives on learner experience design. A nice twist on bringing different skill sets to what makes impactful learning. Enjoy. Have a great week, everyone. Oh, hi, Ed. It's uh, Sophie Bailey here. Hey Sophie, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Very good. Yeah, no, very well, thank you. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, um, I'm delighted to be on the line with Ed Fido, um, who many of you will already know from our UK uh, audience um, as the co-founder of School 21. Um, and you may, if you're an 80s child, also know from the amazing uh, series Woof, which I'm not sure if you're one of those people mm-hmm. that are like, don't talk about that, but uh, I, I have to <laughs> I, I'm now, I've come to terms with it now. Okay. I've come to terms with it, so I can talk about it. Well, so uh, interestingly, I didn't realise that was the case and someone brought this to my attention and uh, I was thrilled to find out that. So, um, in fact, one, <laughs> one of my very serious questions was, do you think playing a shape-shifting dog boy helped with your later leadership roles? <laughs> have you asked that question before no it's, it's, it's unique for you <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh yeah i think look i think it was a very it was definitely a formative uh thing to do when you're a child to be kind of moved out of your school for eight to ten weeks a year and then be off filming as part of a film crew it's really it was an amazing learning experience and definitely opened up my eyes to what's possible because you sort of you sit at sort of age nine and look at the tv and you just think wow how how, how do people appear in there yeah and then it's kind of all all of that myth is then just bust you just go oh okay you just you just they're just a bunch of people standing around cameras and then it gets put down a wire and that's how it happens and you sort of i think that was a really big aha moment for me that you can that you can go off and do other stuff so it's definitely made a difference but i don't know if it, i don't know if it's affected my leadership style specifically that's on a you know it is an interesting one because I suppose at quite an early age it unpacks the idea of uh, or you know it, it, it helped to demystify the process by which things happen and 
it seems to me, sort of sat from afar, that um, that's how you've sort of tackled everything else in life. Just sort of think, well, there's this problem. Like, who do I need to get together? And then let's go and, you know, make it happen. It definitely um, made me realise the power of teams because it was a, you know, a crew is a uh, team of sort of 30, 40 people making those TV shows. Very diverse set of skills that everybody had. We came together what was every summer for six years to make that show. And, yeah, I think my definitely my starting point is always, who am I going to do this with? If it's a, a new project like starting a school, like starting the new university, that's, you know, the, the first the first um, few people that you get together absolutely determines whether it's going to be successful or not. Absolutely. Well, School 21 launched in 2012, and obviously your latest venture that uh, everyone is excitedly talking about is the London Interdisciplinary School. Um, which on your website mentions that it offers a new style of degree, taking a radical approach to develop an exceptional group of pioneers. Um, and I know we've, we've spoken, when I got wind of this new initiative, we, I kind of got in touch and I know that you were sort of uh, mentioning then that things were slightly under the radar and, and you know you were kind of forming what this would mean. Um, Perhaps for the listeners, can you just kind of um, let us know how this new initiative came about and what it is that you'd really love to see happen? Well, if I take you a few steps back, I mean, it starts with, uh, in 2011, 2012, with starting the school in Stratford in Newham. This is a a School 21 project with uh, Peter Hyman and Ollie de Botton and a group of uh, teachers that are taking the risk on, on coming to start this new thing. And we, you know, these teachers were getting together and collaborating, designing a curriculum that was interdisciplinary in many ways, that was um, developing so much more than just the ability to pass exams, but also including that as the students have done successfully since. But but very quickly it occurred to us that um, you've got these exams and GCSEs and A-level coming up. It really ties your hands in terms of what you can do in terms of innovating in the 4 to 18 sector because the students have got to narrow down and invariably they sort of ditch the the other subjects that they're not being examined in. They just drop and don't do. So they stop doing entirely drama or art or music or geography or, you know, it's mad that they sort of just entirely stop doing these things and narrow down to just three or four subjects. And so you start to, I start to think, well, wait a minute, why is that happening? And you realise it's because the university system is so um, monodiscipline that you've got to demonstrate that all you've ever cared about was physics, for example, or all you've ever wanted to be with a doctor mm-hmm. since you were 13 or 14, which is sort of true for some students, not true for lots and lots of students. Mm-hmm. And then and then the kind of thought process, and this thought process went on for two or three years, is, well, how do you shift that? Can you change the way universities do admissions? Well, not really, unless you kind of un- unshackle uh, research from teaching, which isn't going to happen anytime soon. So then you end up with, well, you know, what about... If you started a new institution, could you do that? And then you think, well, wait a minute, if we had these students for three years um, and we were just focused on an extraordinary learning experience, what would that look like? And it just doesn't, and then you suddenly realize actually that's not really how a lot, not all, but it's how, not how a lot of universities are organized. So that was then very exciting. And then, and then, and then I was kind of, and this is kind of while School 21 was, was carrying on, so it was in the back of my mind really. But I've been focused now on this for two or three years, and it's now a team effort. It's definitely not all my ideas at all any longer. But it's a, um, you know, now that thought of interdisciplinarity, not just multidisciplinarity, so students doing more subjects and continuing more subjects, but also connecting them, connecting the dots and bringing those different subjects to bear to solve problems, 
that's the idea that's emerged from um, our thinking over the last two or three years. Well, there's a couple of things there. So the first one was going back to the team uh, that you mentioned before. So can you share with us, like, who are some of the other uh, essential team members or advisors that are helping you launch this project? Yeah, sure. So the first the first follower, this is not my phrase, but I, I mm-hmm. would think the first follower in a project is, is absolutely crucial. And that this was a guy, for me, on this project was a guy called Chris Person, who's a, a tech entrepreneur, a Swedish tech entrepreneur, uh, his, his most famous company, I suppose, in this country is Bookatable.com, which he started a number of years ago. And he did actually start his career in, in executive education, has a son going through university process, and we got introduced by a charity called Big Change about two years ago. And and he was looking, uh, he'd been investing for a few years, was bored, and was looking for an exciting new project, and he just sort of jumped. Got, got stuck in and that was just huge for me from a confidence perspective because I think with any new project like this 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 level of uncertainty mm. you sort of part of your brain is thinking this is probably nuts right mm-hmm. this is you can't you can't really do this so when you have somebody else that's got a track record that says yeah I'll, I'll come and put my name to this as well that's a big deal um, but we needed much more educational expertise as well so uh, three people that have been driving our curriculum designer, Daisy Christodoulou, who will be more familiar to UK mm-hmm. educationalists, who's a um, has worked for ARC schools, um, has written successful books like The Seven Myths of Education. She's often considered to be on the sort of traditionalist side or certainly in the evidence-based side of education, but she's really interesting on interdisciplinarity as well. Mm-hmm. And she's brought a really different take to this project. Uh, professor Carl Gombrich, who's a professor of interdisciplinary education at UCL, who's jo- now joining us uh, as our head of um, teaching faculty, head of head of academics and learning at, at LIS. Um, so he brought the sort of academic university perspective, and particularly around interdisciplinarity. And then a guy called Tim Davies, another entrepreneur who started a company called One Fine Today, but he's a sort of thirty-year-old polymath who's done Y Combinator, the engineering at Imperial, started two businesses. He just is a kind of learning machine. And so there's three of them, and he brings a very different perspective to problem solving. And uh, So the three of them together have been a really, really great engine for kind of new thinking on the curriculum. And has it, has it kind of surprised you, like the groundswell of enthusiasm for what you're doing? Because when you mention that and how it's all come together, I find myself like getting really excited about the potential for this and the need for it and and the fact that someone's actually you know getting it together and making it happen yeah it's been a hugely positive response i think um we were expecting a mixed response because any new entrance into the higher education system tends to get a mixed response from not just the establishment and the the um, incumbent uh, providers of he but you know but anybody anybody because every you know a lot of the people that get to write the articles have done university and it's done all right by them and they don't necessarily think that we need something different but I think what we've been surprised by is the almost uniform positivity about this and I think it stems from the fact that it's a genuinely new offer this is not saying we're going to start a new Oxbridge or we're going to start a new course that does physics a little bit better what we're saying is here's here's an option that actually would be really hard for the current university system to um, to provide because it's so divided up into the subjects and sometimes for good reason because you know this if you're world class at, at physics or history research then you know you should focus on that but what we're saying is we're starting from interdisciplinarity I think you have to start a new institution to do that I think people recognise that and they think that okay this is different enough is actually providing a different choice 
Um, and actually, as well, I think there's that kind of in people, the light goes on in people's heads, and they think, yeah, all these important problems that we need to solve. Yeah, you can't just solve that if you're if you're just a biologist or if you're just a, you just studied law. Um, so yeah, that that's um, that's part of that's part of why I think you've been so positive. And so just to dig into that a little bit more, could you describe, you know, if I'm uh, going to start at uh, LIS in September or whenever it might be um, that you're, you're having your first sort of intake, like what would my, what would like an example experience over three years look like in terms of what I'm learning and then how I might um, kind of develop that over the third year? Sure. So the, so the curriculum will be divided into, the, the biggest difference will be organised around problems. So you might work on um, a, a problem on climate change, let's say, or a health problem or a social inequality problem. You might work on that for three or four weeks. And within that, you'd be learning the parts of economics or science or math or history that you uh, need to tackle that problem. So you'd be learning that through a mixture of different settings. There might be some lectures, visiting experts, you've got a full-time faculty or will have. Um, you might be doing some online learning, but you'll also be coming together to synthesize all of that different knowledge and form theories based on all of those inputs, theories of how you might tackle that problem. Um, the other thing that's different is that you'll then have opportunities um, to take theory and take it into action. So you'll, um, you might create some prototypes or go and test your ideas out in the real world. You might go out and um, survey, uh, interview people. So we're also teaching those methodologies. So methods are a big part of our curriculum as well, qualitative and quantitative methods. So you might be doing understanding something about uh, data science, uh, coding. You might, on the qualitative side, be doing kind of ethnographic research, learning how to kind of design proper interviews. Um, so methods are a big part of it. And then the sort of third part, so the first part is knowledge, bits of knowledge from different subjects. The second part is methods. And then the third part is what we're calling amplification methods, which is the ability to kind of take what you've learned and then go and have an impact on the world to amplify what, what you you can do so that would be about uh, communicating powerfully something we've done a lot of work on at, at, Voice, at School 21 and Voice 21 the charity that was spun out from the school and then um, you know learn how to uh, campaign influence people and so on so that might be through digital or methods or other, other methods so those three strands knowledge methods and amplification um, are the kind of headlines over the three years you would deepen your ability across each of those three areas and you might also start to specify in certain kinds of problems. So if you do specialise at all, it would be not within, say, history that you start to specialise in, but you might start to specialise in a certain kind of problem, um, let's say migration problems, for example. Fantastic. With our audience, it's almost sort of preaching to the converted because they're sort of well-versed in, I don't know, project-based learning or whatever the, the kind of terminology might be. Um, how have you found that, um, you know, the mainstream media has taken to the idea? What kind of questions have they asked you about how this will work in practice and that kind of thing? So, um, I mean, the, the, the first thing to say is it's positive, result, positive response so far, but the more circumspect uh, commentators have said, for example, can students really learn how to solve knife crime or can students really solve climate change? And what we would say to that is, we don't actually talk about the students solving these problems. We talk about the students tackling these problems, embracing these problems, but the problems act as a vehicle to learning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not it's the students who don't think are going to solve something in a term or even three years that have taken uh, experts decades. Uh, this is about a vehicle for learning. Um, 
I think the second thing is that uh, sometimes we get challenged that are, you know, we're working with um, organizations, external organizations, we're providing internships for our students, and some of those are more traditional existing organizations like Virgin or McKinsey, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's that, that they're not going to be thinking in new ways, and if we just work with those partners, we won't, we won't come up with new solutions. I think that's a good challenge, but it's important for us. I think it's important for our students to understand the world out there, and you only do that through um, engaging with it as it currently exists. You have to kind of take the world, you have to sort of engage with the world where it's at. Um, so, so that's another challenge that's come. I think the third thing is that we get um, a lot of people saying, "Look, how can you possibly go deep across a whole range of areas? Aren't you just going to end up being a, uh, a jack of all trades and a master of none?" Um, and I think the that is a fair challenge. And, you know, we've absolutely got to avoid a kind of glibness of sort of, oh, yeah, I know a little bit about everything. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you're, you, people, our students come out saying, well, the problem with scientists is that, you know, they're totally ahistorical and so you can kind of dismiss them. That, that isn't what we want to be happening. I think what will happen is that we're trying to create a different sort of depth in what we're doing. We're saying, look, if you're looking at a problem, you're not looking at it from a scientific perspective and a historical perspective and an economic perspective. You've not got the depth a field that you need to look at that problem. So we're sort of repositioning depth as being um, that combination of different lenses yes, shining, yeah. shining a light. So, so, so those, I would say those are three areas where we get challenged. And then, I mean, from the perspective, having just done a series of uh, research calls with the universities, um, and then there are different new universities popping up, um, to what extent... Is it challenging to set up a new university in the way you should like to uh, because of existing regulatory and funding mechanisms and that kind of thing? Uh, well, I think there's no government funding for us. Mm-hmm. Um, there might have been if we were starting it in a opportunity area in the kind of north of England or a coastal town or something. But but it's really important the structure of this, I think it does have to be in London, the, the, the model that we're proposing. So it's so linked to outside organisations and, and so reliant on um, the academic community in, that, you, that you've got in London. Mm-hmm. So there's no government money because that's to raise money from private individuals that want to see a new institution. So that's a challenge. But I think the regulatory changes that we've seen in the last couple of years have, have helped rather than hindered. I mean, it's still, there's still regulators on us. I think that's right. You know, it's important that this is a regulated space. People pay a lot of money to learn and it has to be rigorous and, and, and worth something. Um, but the, the regulation is ease so that we can get our own degree awarding powers, which means we don't have to be monitored by another university for six years, which is the old system as you have to be babysat by somebody else for a few years, uh, which is a, a real um, break on, on innovation and, and new entrants which is why we haven't seen so many new entrants in the last few years, and certainly not people doing something genuinely different. So the regulatory shifts, I think, are helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the sort of... This is, this is a complicated project where everything has to be being put together at the same time, because it sort of has to be. So you're raising money at the same time as mm-hmm. signing up your students and... Uh, getting degree awarding powers and getting a site and starting to recruit faculty. So it's a, you know, all of those different things are complicated in their own right, which is why the only thing is important. One question I had was, um, you mentioned um, Daisy Christodoulou even, uh, was around, so I know that she's got some interesting ideas around um, assessment and continuous assessment. Um, 
And I, w- I was wondering about that in relation to um, LIS, but also sort of more broadly thinking about what the role of technology will be and how you envisage that will be um, across the university as well. Yeah, well, I think the, the thing in uh, university, similarly to schools, is that you've always got a range of different assessment tools that you can use and there's no one, uh, you know, one perfect way of assessing. It's all about... And one thing that Daisy is a real expert in this area is is firm on. I mean, you know, she thinks A-levels and GCSEs are a very poor way to assess true knowledge of a domain. They're just a sample. Uh, so she's no champion for, for high-stakes exams, which might be surprising to some people who, who know less about what she what she writes about. Um, she's 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 uh, works for an organisation now called No More Marking, mm. which is a proponent of comparative judgment, um, where you sort of, you know, this is really for students that are writing essays and comparing English teachers can look and say, is that one better than this one? And then it kind of, you go through lots of different scripts saying, is it A or is it B? And then an algorithm kind of in the background um, turns the numbers and, and says, right, well, you, we think this is probably going to be minus and that's C plus or whatever. So that clever piece of uh, uh, combining teacher judgment with an, um, kind of a bit of uh, machine learning or algorithm, mm-hmm. algorithm power and we'll definitely be using things like that. The university will also be um, using technology. So, but but the first thing to say is that look, it, the face-to-face relationship is really important. So, teacher, the relationship between the teacher and the students, and then the kind of text that they're working on, is always what you start with. And then you think, right, where can where can technology enhance this, or where? This technology, you know, basically do just as good a job, so we'll, so we can do that because it's easier or cheaper or more convenient. So, you know, there'll be a fair bit of rather than kind of lectures on the 101 of um, certain parts of the curriculum. You can do that through tech. You can, um, that's where, you know, MOOCs, as they're called, are, are helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think um, there's no substitute for getting students in a room discussing content with a teacher that knows their stuff. The teacher can understand where the students are at and so on. So, so it's complementary, but because we're new, we can we can blend the technology in ways that are, I think, probably more advanced than most universities will be able to. Because you know, because we've got the advantage of starting from a blank sheet of paper. And and just thinking about you know um, LIS addressing some of society's challenges, will that also include you know how we negotiate a changing world in you know with artificial intelligence? So, for example, whether that means thinking about new financial models or you know equipping those students to to, to kind of both um, be agile enough to, to kind of work in, a, in an age where things might change more rapidly but also to, to kind of think of some of the ethical issues or some of the the kind of fallout of, of things changing in that way as well well there's essentially two ways of looking at your question um, one is are we going to prepare our students for the workplace of you know, tomorrow, or are you, or you, I could interpret your question as, is that one of the problems that they're going to be tackling on the curriculum? Mm. It also might be both, really. So we haven't decided exactly what the problems are that for making up the curriculum yet. We've got, um, we've got, we're sort of, it's a, it's a dual exercise of deciding what the elements of the curriculum are, what do you want them to know at the end of three years, and then what are the best problems to get them there? And those problems have not been finally selected yet. So we may have some um, world of, you know, the world of work, automate, mass automation type problems in there for the students to, to investigate. I think that would be really interesting. We obviously think that, that, that there's a, 
uh, an exciting future uh, career prospects for our students, our graduates, um, based on what, what they're going to be doing with us. And I think there's, you know, first of all, I think even if the world of work wasn't changing, there's lots more that the university system can do to prepare students for the world of work by simply helping them understand what that world looks like. I mean, there's an assumption at the minute you kind of figure out for yourself that you definitely want to work in finance or something, and you've got to decide that by term two or LSE because mm-hmm. you're applying for internships. You know, without any exploration and awareness of what the different sectors and functions and industries look like. So, so the first thing is that we'll, we'll, we'll spend a fair bit of time on that. And, you know, that's where you want to do a placement with a startup and then uh, the Gates Foundation or McKinsey or whatever. Um, and you'll do it, do it across a range of those different organizations. I think on, and then, and then we're, we've got a take, which is that rather than preparing for the professions, which I think, you know, you can ask the question, will the professions look the same in 20 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're preparing for problems and because those problems will still be around in 20 years. They probably will still be facing the same kinds of problems that reflect the current sustainability goals or development goals. Um, and they'll still be interdisciplinary, they'll still be complex, and there still won't be people that are um, wholly suited to solving them. So you'll need a people like our graduates that can work with an expert anthropologist and expert scientist to form those teams we started out the conversation talking about um, that can go and tackle them. Uh, and we think that not everybody should do a degree like that. So I don't think the, you know, this is the only preparation for the world, future world of work, but we think our students will have this really interesting, distinctive skill set that's really needed. And and have you kind of looked sideways at some of the other interdisciplinarity uh, kind of universities or sort of education initiatives out there? Because um, uh, the the, um, guest on last week's episode was um, Francois Tadai from um, Cree in Paris. And so it was like a really interesting time where I was starting to kind of connect with lots of people that were passionate about this approach to education. Um, But I just wondered who else that you're in discussion with that sort of um, shares the same outlook? Well, we've got... There are increasing numbers, certainly increasing numbers of students wanting to do liberal arts, which is mm-hmm. a sort of a big movement towards a broader education at HE. In the UK, obviously that's been around in the US for a long time and been popular. Um, so that, I think there's some new figures by release being released soon by Unifrog, um, which is the platform for helping select your options after school. Uh, they're in a, they're, that platform's in a third of schools in the UK, so they've got great data on what students want to do. And apparently liberal arts was, hmm. for the last couple of years, in the third most popular degree choice after medicine and law, which has blew my mind. So that, you know, there's a real growing demand for liberal arts, and that's come out of nowhere. Um, and then I think for this kind of slightly more interdisciplinary putting it together to solve problems, who do we look for there? Well, Chaos Pilot in Denmark has been doing this for 20, 25 years. More, slightly more of a postgrad offer, that one. Um, in the US, Minerva University, which started about five, four, five years ago, uh, is, is interesting. It's multidisciplinary, but they work on projects, particularly in their final year. I think they're really enlightened in terms of how they work with the outside world. They're much more porous. And those students travel around the world during their degree, which is amazing. Um, so there's definitely people that we look to, that we are, uh, are stealing from, learning from, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't think there's anyone that's doing, we've not found anyone yet that's doing precisely what we're doing. Um, and we're not trying to be different deliberately, but um, we're, yeah, we're, we're, I think we're shaping this with a fresh, got a fresh take on this. It's got a London edge to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why um, not? <laughs> and then it says it says on your I noticed on your LinkedIn that you're hiring. So 
Who's next to join the team? Who are you looking for? Well, look, the biggest challenge we face is recruiting 120 fantastic undergrads for 2020. Mm-hmm. That's a huge challenge to get these students to believe enough in what we're doing to take a risk on it. Um, I mean, I think it's a you know, real adventure they'll be embarking on, but that's a big challenge. So it's our marketing team, uh, recruitment team, if you like, that we're recruiting for. So two roles there in social media and in kind of schools outreach and, and running events for us over the next 12 months to get to recruit those 120. That, those are the two big roles we're going for now. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And I think it's really, truly very exciting. Um, and I'll be following it really closely. So thanks very much for sharing your work with us. Of course. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, if people want to follow, uh, where should they look or how should they connect with you? Uh, well, we're on uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And I think it's pretty much always at we are, we are LIS. Yeah, we uh, so are. So W-E-A-R-E-L-I-S. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, good luck with the next chapter. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. So, hello and welcome, everyone. Um, As Joe mentioned, my name is Sophie and I'm the founder and presenter of the EdTech podcast. And today I'll be moderating our discussion on multiple uh, perspectives on learner experience design. You'll be hearing from a teacher, an EdTech startup, a rep from the British Dyslexia Association and a school governor on what learner experience design means to them. First up, we're talking about learner experience design. Um, Perhaps each of the panel can tell us what learner experience design might mean to them and how they have applied it uh, within their own context. So how can lessons, resources and planning be designed around a diverse set of learners? Um, And to kick off, um, perhaps David, you could talk about your... Um, ideas around learning as a dialogue and experimentation and sure um well i work in a school in stratford just here just the other side of the olympic park uh called school 21 um it's an all through school so they go through from primary through to sixth form i've just started working there and um the school has a strong emphasis upon oracy with the students so um they're very much into the dialogical classroom model um my previous experience is working in SEN in the Northeast and um, work with kids on uh, the autistic spectrum. And again, um, just a very dialogical approach to um, teaching. I teach art and design, but usually I'm going into classroom environments with nothing and finding out what the, what the kids want to do, really. And I kind of start from there. So it's a, a starting with absolutely nothing and finding out what motivates them. Um, which I think is a bit of a no-brainer if you can get them on side from the word go. And then you just run with that and I'm just a bloke with a set of keys and access to some kit. Um, and then you take it from there and you, you let it unfold organically. Yeah, um, I'm uh, um, Enrico. I'm a member of the British Dyslexia Association New Technology Committee. I'm dyslexic myself. And in the day-to-day job, uh, I train uh, students um, and individuals in the workplace on how to use a lot of different um, solutions, mainly software, to cope with their diffic- the difficulties that they encounter through the uh, courses uh, as a university or uh, uh, in the, the workplace. Um, in terms of uh, what the New Technology Committee does, we uh, evaluate new technologies all the time so that could be useful for dyslexic. The, I don't know how many of you are familiar with dyslexia. Um, in my experience, dyslexia 
unfortunately is not well, very well understood. Um, people don't know what it is, though they have misconceptions. So uh, you might have a, a student that find um, uh, is very bright, uh, very good at talking, but when it comes down to writing or reading or researching materials or other tasks that other students might find difficult, they might find it uh, extremely difficult. So by using technology that can help them, uh, obviously they can sort of uh, uh, be brought to at the same level as other students that don't find, uh, they don't have those difficulties. Unfortunately, the material in, it to, in order to be accessed needs to be structured in a particular way, needs to be accessible, and unfortunately that's not the case all the time, so it's a, quite a long um, um, sort of uh, long speech about that, but it's just the idea is that uh, material needs to be structured in a particular way in order to be accessed with the technology and therefore by the dyslexic students. Yeah, I guess I've got a dual perspective really. Um, I've been a school governor for many years, um, a board member of the Harris Federation Multi-Academy Trust. So that kind of gives me a perspective from inside the education system and the challenges that that uh, brings with it, uh, funding and uh, all those lovely things. Uh, but then in my professional life, my experience has really been about uh, the broader arena of, of learning, um, first through brand and communications agencies that I've owned and run. Uh, and more recently working uh, with Kahoot. Uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with Kahoot. Okay, so for those of you not familiar with Kahoot, it's a, a game-based um, learning platform built around a quiz format that's been ridiculously successful. I think there's something like 50 million monthly active users over 180 countries now. And um, at Kahoot, I guess what we were really trying to do is bridge these two worlds of uh, the broader learning uh, environment, but making a, a creating a platform that could be applicable within the constructs of uh, the education system. Um, and we, our philosophy was really about trying to embed play at the heart of learning. Uh, and we developed our pedagogy that underpins Kahoot around the idea of uh, a learner first getting themselves into the mindset of a player and actually uh, treating their work or their learning as, as almost like a game designer. Um, and by uh, researching a topic and then creating a game around that topic and then sharing it and, uh, with, with others so you get that kind of social validation as well. Uh, you actually take the learner from a cycle all the way around to teacher and then ultimately leader. Um, so that was really the philosophy that we built into Kahoot. I think up until um, you know, this past year or so where we've had the introduction of Progress 8 as the primary kind of measure of, uh, of progress in secondary schools, um, I think the way the game was set up was very much focusing schools around those students that are on the kind of CD borderline. Uh, lots of intervention uh, for those students because ultimately schools want to ensure that they're performing against the measures that the government have laid down. Um, and I think was, and we, despite all our best intentions of, of every child matters and all that kind of stuff, um, I think the way that the measurement system was set up encouraged 
resources to focus on those around the CD borderline. I think what's interesting with Progress 8 is it's changed the game a bit in that you know, we now have to uh, ensure that every student, wherever they're starting from, uh, makes the maximum amount of progress. And um, the philosophy within the Harris uh, chain of schools has, has always been very much around um, more personalised learning, I guess. And uh, I think this is on to the right kind of path, although I understand from a teaching perspective it's been quite challenging, to say the least. Yeah, I worked in primary schools with um, with kids and started thinking that the kids I worked with were never in the stories that they were exposed to. So my kids were like 80% from Asian and African backgrounds and uh, half of them were girls and they were just never in their own stories or their adverts or whatever. Um, then I worked in a tech startup and then I helped introduce the computer science curriculum in primary schools. And now I run um, a startup that makes stories um, about Detective Dot, who's a coder, and she's an agent for the CIA, which is the Children's Intelligence Agency. And kids can join the CIA and carry out missions and training. Um, and so we're taking like an entertainment-first approach to getting uh, better role models out and teaching kids about STEM and computer science. And because it is a business, um, I think of everything as sort of incredibly... We, we build stuff in an agile way, so we think about... Um, what do our users want and what features can we build for them and we review that on a weekly basis um, so it's bringing a completely different approach into like a top down these, this is what uh, the children need to achieve in a test how can we make sure they learn it and just thinking about what do kids want from their lives that, like not to be bored to feel valuable like those sorts of things and how can we build stories around that um, so the first thing that we did is that we um, I made a book and I did it on Kickstarter and then we started speaking to publishers and they were like oh well it's there's a female on the front of your book so it's a book for girls and I was like no no it's a book for boys and girls and they were like no boy lead is a book for boys and girls or a boy and a girl is a book for boys and girls but if there's a girl on the front it's a book for girls and like proper people were saying this to me out loud <laughs> and um it was like completely accepted by everyone and I thought that that was nuts and if it's true it's only because everyone's accepting it as a truth and then exacerbating the problem um, and so to counter that and also because I didn't know what I was doing to get the writer for the book and the illustrator I put an advert out on indeed.com which is like gumtree for jobs it's um, bad and we got about 400 applicants so we filtered it down to 50 illustrators and 50 writers and then we went into schools and homes and got the kids to filter it down to the writer and the illustrator and then we tested our character like a lot like went back to kids repeatedly over about six months with um, slight changes to the visuals uh, so that we could know that boys would think it was a book for them too. Um, and it was difficult and there are still preconceptions that if there's a female lead on the front but we have done like a lot of work to make sure that it's appealing to kids because all kids need positive role models um, and that was very user focused. I didn't believe what the publisher said and it like obviously would piss anyone off if someone said that to you, probably. Um, sorry for swearing. It's not me. <laughs> I'm like this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so no, well that well that's a user-centered design process. Like test it out with our actual users. What do they think about who the book is for? Um, so yeah. I mean, certainly when we were designing Kahoot. Um, many of our preconceptions of what was going to work 
were proven wrong. Um, so I think that we have adopted a, a methodology now uh, which is really about coming up with hypotheses about what we think might add value to this learning experience but really kind of not getting too in love with that idea and um, trying to validate it in the real world to see if it actually does the thing that we expect it to do. Uh, so I think in terms of user experience design, uh, humility uh, and uh, you know, listening to what people are saying with real intent and not getting too fixated on proving that your idea is amazing. Uh, I did a research on, uh, uh, was a case study, did research on learning styles, which up, up to that point, I just, I knew the sort of the basic one, which is the visual, auditory, kinesthetic, and uh, um, the visual, auditory, reading and writing, kinesthetic. So the idea is, I'm sure, is everyone familiar with the learning style theory, basically, or few people? So the idea is that, uh, I can do a questionnaire and I can find out what your learning style is as a, as a, as a, and then I will try to teach you in that particular way, which is uh, by researching uh, the literature came out it's completely pseudoscience and uh, has been dismantled completely the theory. So, I'm so glad you said that. It's been completely yeah. completed. So the idea yeah. of pigeonholing a students stuff. and say there is no scientific uh, scientific research behind and so the whole theory was dismantled by someone called Frank Coffield that did a very in-depth uh, study of learning styles so the idea is using so the idea of learning the learning there are different way of learning to develop a multi-sensory approach so I can structure my material with, with some visual material with auditory so the student listens to me but also they need to do they need to replicate I give a lot of examples so it's something practical so it's thinking more uh, in a multi-sensory approach and then each student will find their, uh, the way that they can learn best which is always a mix it's never be just one style the problem is that uh, a lot of the curriculum in schools as far as I'm aware is developed in just, deliver just in one way and so for a dyslexic students that might not even know that they are dyslexic because that's the problem uh, that a lot of dyslexic are not being diagnosed and so they uh, they find difficult to learn in just in one way it could be just like in, in, in written in a written word and also the in, in um, in higher education, in further education, the emphasis on being assessed just with written material for, for a dyslexic is something extremely difficult. I can you know, talk orally about something, but if you ask me to write it down, it's, it can be very, very difficult. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, there, is not, there is no funding to do further research on learning styles, so um, uh, it's something that is uh, um, a lot of teachers in my research they, they still use because it's something very simple and makes sense and so logical and so is assumed that it works but that's not the reality unfortunately so we need to be very careful about um, pigeonholing a student in a specific uh, so I've gone from a situation where in SEN I had about 10 kids in the class and um, helping the class as well and picking up just on some of this play idea a lot of and the sensory idea um, so using a lot of play-based learning and a lot of um, you know just sensory delighting materials so just giving kids stuff to play with creating situations of dialogue between them and themselves and then using that material afterwards um, to create another point of dialogue as well so that's kind of how I've taught um, 
And at the moment, because I've moved to school 21, um, I've gone from teaching 10 kids in a class to teaching 25 kids in a class. So scaling that up has been quite a challenge for me over the last couple of months. But I find that, um, well, a couple of things I've found, getting rid of tables and chairs and those kind of tacit assumed um, structures of hierarchy, moving those things, or just taking everybody outside really kind of opens things up and it breaks down you know, there's a lot of tacit assumed power that a teacher has, and the kids buy into that, unfortunately, because in, they're institutionalised, aren't they? So um, I think it's about breaking those things down and indulging them in play with materials, I think, you know, and that can be done in a very physical way. It can be done across, you know, digital platforms and things like that. I think it's just about trust and, and, and indulging the students. I mean, I think you can, you can involve kids in dialogue, but at the end of the day, you're a teacher and they're a student, and there's that cultural problem, isn't there? So if I remove myself from that situation and I give all the kids a, a GoPro head camera, which is what I did, um, and let them just basically play with materials, and then their dialogue is their dialogue, and they're asking each other questions, and then we then... So I've removed myself from the, the equation, but I still collect the stuff, the, the footage, and then afterwards I watched that footage back with the students and what I found was is that the, the conversations and the dialogue is much more rich when I'm removed from the situation. So it's about um, being less present to let them be more present because they will fill that vacuum with themselves and their own reflection and they will take the lesson in lots of different directions. You know, I've introduced sort of ideas from other artists and then they've kind of ran with it and built on it and then I thought, oh, they're taking it in a particular direction that I hadn't thought of. And then it's about me responding to that direction as well. So it's a dialogue, isn't it? I'm co-constructing a curriculum with them. It might seem quite chaotic and woolly from the outside, um, but as long as I can map it back to, you know, the curriculum requirements, I think that, you know, that that's kind of my job. Yeah. Uh up until quite recently, the, all of the games that are on Kahoot, which are millions, um, have been user-generated, entirely user-generated. So it's really up to the, the user base to craft materials um, that were aligned to the various curriculum uh, around the world. Um, we've now started to take a bit more of an active role in that and uh, are starting to develop our own materials uh, because we found like uh, uh, we wanted to kind of have a stronger uh, pedagogy built into those games. Uh, so if you like, it's kind of premium content, albeit though we're still giving it away for free. Um, and, and it's really about trying to have an appropriate level of challenge. You know, that, that's what we think creates an interesting learning experience. If there's enough stretch that it makes it engaging but not too much so that it's just completely unattainable um, that uh, we've kind of noticed in the in the, uh, the way that our games have been played and the data that we've amassed now from millions and millions of games being played um, we've, we've can i ask what which age groups is it aimed at then it's uh, it really goes from um primary school into secondary but it's used in business as well right. yeah we've got 
200,000 businesses that use it in corporate training. Mm -hmm. So it really is a kind of broad learning platform. But uh, I think because of the way it was originally conceived, it's been able to be used within the constraints of um, the education system. Yeah. And the, the, the fact of the matter is that now the headline measures are about Progress 8 scores and um, you know, the, the teachers have been able to facilitate the use of Kahoot within their classrooms um, to uh, still deliver the curriculum but in more engaging ways. Mm. It's interesting what you're saying about the furniture. Uh, if you've ever looked on the Kahoot website, uh, some of the games being played, the, the furniture has been used to be stood upon. And uh, you, if you ever search for hashtag loud learning, you'll see quite a different learning experience uh, uh, as a result of, of using a tool like Kahoot, uh, which breaks all the rules. And uh, you have principals running down corridors wondering what the noise is all about. But this is what we need to inspire kids to do, Absolutely. is to challenge and break those rules. Yeah. You know, that's going to make them yeah. autonomous. That's what we want. Very, very early on, uh, when the game was first launched, we went to a school in Bournemouth, and uh, there was a, a young student who was not very engaged in this class at all, and he'd been a bit of a problem. And uh, the the aha moment where we thought we we're onto something here was that this kid absolutely got into it. He was fist pumping mm. uh, because his name had appeared on the screen at the front of the class. Mm. And uh, that was a breakthrough kind of moment. Um, well, there's, I don't know, like when, because I, I like testing everything. So when I was writing the book and I'm not a writer, although I am now, but um, what I thought was that we would constantly, um, like every sort of chapter, show it back to kids and get feedback. And actually what I learned was, and everyone, after the event, we got an editor, which also is a bad idea. If you're writing a book, get an editor at the beginning. But the editor was like, oh, your story structure's wrong, but it's too late to change it now. Um, and I thought that testing it was, was the way to do it, but I learned that there are some points where we needed to lock down um, an idea and then be able to build on it. But there are most things I think we can test, like... We're testing now whether instead of having a website, having a huge pulsating button saying do not touch is a more effective experience for kids because like, obviously you're going to want to touch it. Or um, in the next book, we're now working with a publisher, should we put our activities, because our book covers all of the concepts of key stage one and key stage two computer science curriculum. So should we put activities in, um, inside of the story or at the end of the story? Publishers say inside of the story. And I'm like, well, let's just test it. Let's do two versions and see what works better. So there, is, there are mistakes we've made, but I think overall testing is good. Enrico, from your perspective as well, we talked about the funding and lack of awareness. Um, first of all, there is a lot of misunderstanding about dyslexia. Um, some students <coughs> might have difficulties at school, the parents recognize it because they are dyslexic themselves. They say to the teacher, I think I can recognize my, my son those difficulties. And the teacher will very likely reply, I heard this story so many times, oh no, I don't think it's going to be the case give him time, it will take a while, and just the, the problem might, might get worse when they get to secondary school and so on and so on. So that will affect the self-esteem. And because of there is no institutional funding in primary and secondary school for 
everyone and it's very much a postcode lottery it depends in which school you go if it is school if the same the special education needs coordinator knows about dyslexia and, and so on and so on so it could create uh, a problem with um, confidence and self-esteem not just uh, obviously difficulty at school but it can reflect in this, this the student become uh, disruptive in the classroom and I'm sure you experience a lot of them um, what um, and then so either the parents have fun Either the school you, you got a good TA or a, a good Senko, or, but as I said, in my experience, what I hear from from parents and teachers is very is very patchy, is not uh, all great. over the country. And the thing is, whereas what um, the experience that um, uh, in English dyslexia, because the English language is a less transparent language, you have to learn two languages basically as a foreigner I can tell you so you have to learn the way you write it the way you write you, you pronounce it so it's much easier to find you know see that the, the child has difficulties uh, in it in Italian uh, because the language is more transparent you pronounce it very similar the way you write it so it's less it's more difficult to find out from that point of view but what the, and there is no there are no resources at all not no resources at university no resources in schools uh, so it's left to either the parents to support the, the children or, uh, um, or or nothing basically so what they what it come up because of this sort of uh, lack of resources in uh, in, uh, in in the educational system or in the workplace uh, they come up with uh, they, they started with with uh, one in uh, in Bologna in Italy and then they, now they are all over, all over the country they do after after schools, because in Italy schools finish in the morning, and so they uh, they go to those after school two or three times a week, and the, the, there are psychologists uh, and teachers that follow, you know, maybe I don't know one psychologist for three or four students, and they the whole um, is all um, the whole goal uh, is to make them independent learners. So they explain to them how to use support software and other solutions or strategies on how to maybe use the material that they receive in the morning at school, how to listen to it or how to create a mind map or so something visual that would be much easier for me to remember visually rather than just having a block of text that I have to read or interactive books as well so that uh, is something that they, they learn how to become independent learners and then they can continue in the university and the rest of their lives so that's the main goal and out of as I said necessity because there were no resources uh, is something that uh, now is they are all over Italy and it's something that's quite um, unique in a way it's not something that exists in this country either your parents have funding to send you to a private tutor or as far as I'm aware there is nothing like that so it's necessity basically everyone for listening if you're interested in events coming up here's one for your diary future ed tech takes place on the 11th and 12th of june in london it's free for higher ed peeps uh, and everyone else can use the code podcast 20 to get a nice discount so go and check out all the details at www.theedtechpodcast.com that's all for now have a wonderful week everyone do feel free to follow us at podcast edtech and see you next time. Bye-bye.